Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Beck with Behind the Warrior podcast. We are picking up where we left off last week with my interview with United States Marine Corps retired Captain Carl Josidas. This is part two of the interview, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, well, Carl, I want to shift just a little bit. I, I know um, that we've touched kind of softly on on your creative side and your interest in painting, and I'd, I'd love for you to tell me what um, the bomb, buzzard, and pick represents to you. It represents uh, Marine EOD and, and the family of Marine EOD. Uh, it's unique. And, and when I started painting, repainting, I should say, uh, buzzards for our, our wounded Marine EOD folk, um, I would present them with a buzzard, but I would also enclose a a card uh, like a greeting card Mm -hmm. with the buzzard on the cover and then a story about how the buzzard came about and and part of the thing that i did there is that i I would i would tell them that uh, marines are unique within the armed forces and and all marines will tell you that the other armed forces won't tell you that, but we'd be happy to tell you that. <laughs> Marine EOD is unique within the Corps and within the EOD field. Therefore, it is fitting that the Marine EOD have a very unique emblem. And we have that in our buzzard. And it has been said that the emblem, that it's an emblem that only a Marine EOD can find beauty in. And I agree, and I'm sure the guy who got my buzzard and other Marine EOD understands the beauty of it, too. It's the, um, to me, it's the Marine EOD what the EOD badge is to the EOD field. Mm-hmm. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead since we're talking about the bombing buzzard. Um just to a question, and then I'll come back to the other ones. But um, I first met you at Walter Reed uh, delivering the paintings of the Bomb and Buzzard and Pick, and um, you wanted every EOD Marine that was injured to have one, and you met some great young Marines that had returned stateside for care. Um, what has that meant to you to give them such a special gift, Carl? It, I, I think... The, the, the bottom line meaning is between my generation of Marine EOD and the new generation of Marine EOD. It's, it, to me, it's a crossover. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, by the way, if you remember, gave me Tim Brown's name, who had already got a buzzer, to be my presenter of buzzers without Tim Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh the buzzards would not have been delivered because of a clause called HEPA laws right. that does not allow names to go out. And mm-hmm. if you remember correctly, I think our first conversation uh, 
was just about that because I was trying to find out who these guys were and nobody was telling me anything. And mm -hmm. I even had gone over to EOD school and I couldn't get any answers from them either, which really surprised me at the time. But but basically, that's what it is to bring my generation of EOD folks into the generation of uh, the ones that had lost their arms and legs, and, mm -hmm. and there was more, so many more than we than we had in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Although Vietnam was a was a longer war, mm -hmm. uh, our casualty count was not nearly uh, what Afghanistan and uh, Iraq were. Right, right, yeah. Um, I think you told me that uh, Johnny Morris was the first first guy that you gave the the picture to. Is that oh yes, that's how it started. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Um, we had started a Marine Corps detachment here in Baldwin County, and uh, it's kind of like the Navy leave for the Navy folks. I don't know about the Army, and, but anyway, we have a Marine Corps. So we started a Marine Corps detachment here in Baldwin County, and we're looking for some way to help wounded Marines. And we found uh, through the grapevine, I guess, mm -hmm. that we had two from Baldwin County. One was at Walter Reed, and the other one was out at Camp Pendleton. And the one at Camp Pendleton was a concussion shot uh, mm -hmm. to the brain, mm -hmm. and it was a loss of a leg to the Marine up in uh, Walter Reed. So I had a, a brain wave and said, I'll just take and paint him a buzzard. If he's Marine EOD, he needs a buzzard. So <laughs> I <laughs> I got my paints out and canvas and and did up a buzzard. Then I took it over to our my commandant, who was our leader of our detachment, and I said, uh, I think we ought to present this to uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Morris. Well, my commandant looked at it, and uh, believe it or not, regular Marines are not too happy with the buzzard <laughs> for some known reason. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, he looked at it, and he thought it was like touching the devil. So he said, no, you do it. So I took it up. She, she actually works in the licensee department of Baldwin County up in Bay Manette. So I took it up to give it to her. And she, her statement was, you know, there's more of them. And I said, what do you mean more of them? She said, well, there's at least seven. Mm. And this so, is Johnny Morris's mom that you were talking yes, to, correct? Yeah, Sherry's her name. Sharon, and yeah. Sharon. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, so I said, okay, well, I have to start painting some more. So that's uh, when I f first started presenting uh, the buzzards. And then I couldn't get names. I called headquarters Marine Corps. And luckily, uh, the um, master gunnery sergeant in, in charge of EOD up there, he said he couldn't give me the names uh, because of HEPA. Mm -hmm. That was my first roadblock. Mm -hmm. So I said, how about if I read the names that I've got and you tell me whether they're uh, EOD or not? Mm -hmm. And I said, if you don't say anything... I know they are EOD because I don't want to send a buzzer to somebody who's a just a regular Marine because they had no idea what it is. Right, right. And so I started going over the name and I got to uh, Johnny Joey Jones mm -hmm. and and 
Master Gunn says, well, he's a staff sergeant now. Well, now I know I got something going here. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and then you came into the picture and I said, I was looking for somebody to uh, get me to the people that need to go. And you said, well, Tim Brown. Mm -hmm. So Tim Brown became my uh, buzzer presenter. Yeah. And, And the deal was that he would have a picture taken of him and a Marine who got the buzzard and the buzzard, and then a Marine who got the buzzard and the buzzard. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, uh, about 95% of the Marines that received a buzzard, I uh, have a picture of them. Wow. That's and then when I went up, when, when I met you up at Walter Reed, it was because I woke up one morning and told Karen, my wife, I said, I got to go up and see these guys. Doing it from here is one thing, but seeing somebody eyeball to eyeball is different. So she said, go up to Walter Reed. So I went up, and that's when you and I formally met. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It's been a great experience, and and uh, and, and thank you for all your help. Oh, sure, Carl. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's something that was very touching, and... I know that our, our, you know, wounded EOD techs that are Marines um, cherish that. And uh, what, a, what a thoughtful way to um, just give an expression of, of art and also just an expression of your appreciation and the connection of being a Vietnam-era EOD technician to our, you know, current day um, Marines out there. So um, I always thought it was really, really cool. So it's always been a pleasure. It was fun. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Um, Well, Carl, do you have any awards or achievements that you're most proud of um, in your service? Well, I do. I have, like all Marines and all sailors, uh, I would have to say number one would be the Combat Action Ribbon. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those that don't know, the Combat Action Ribbon signifies that you've been in a a fight, you've been shot at, and you've shot back. Mm -hmm. That was the criteria of of the Combat Action Ribbon. And it came out between my first tour and my second tour, and instead of going through all the rigmarole of trying to get one for the first tour, I knew I was with the ground, and I would. It's just a matter of time before I would get my one for, with my second tour, mm-hmm. and it did. Mm-hmm. It happened on Easter Sunday uh, in 1969 in a place called Firebase Saigon. It was a temporary firebase set up for the Ashall Valley fight which included some place that everybody knows called Hamburger Hill. I think they even made a movie about it. They were, uh, during that fight, they had set up this uh, couple of temporary fire bases, and Saigon was one of them. They were starting to remove all the guns and retrograde everything from the fire base when somebody realized that they had tried to drop a pallet of 81 millimeter mortars to uh, the position and they missed their mark and it went into uh, what we called Indian country. 
And our call was to uh, send a team out to recover it and blow it. So I and my boss, Warren, Chief Warren Officer Rasta, were, took the call to go out there and blow up our 81 mortars. So we flew out, and I know it was Easter Sunday because we had a chaplain with us, and he was going to do Easter service on, on a fire base. Mm-hmm. Well, they formed up a patrol for us, and when you went out in a patrol for EOD, I'm sure it is as it today as it was back then eod is in the center of patrol and patrol you're you're like a passenger on a in a car so we we saddle up and we go down to fire base we go out into indian country and and get to the to the pallet ammunition which is all broken apart we uh unboxed everything set up a shot put our explosives on it and fire in the hole and the ammunition's gone. We start returning back to the fire base. Well, fire base is sitting on top of a hill. Uh, some folks call it a mountain. Some people call it a hill, but it's a pretty good hike. On the way back through uh, going up to the fire base, as we got into the base of the, of the hill, uh, we tripped in ambush. Uh, Charlie, somebody either Charlie coughed or somebody um, made made motion in front, and then Charlie rolled some rolled some hand grenades down on us, and we backed up, uh, did an about well, set down a base of fire, backed up, did an about face, and now the rear of the patrol was a, was the front of the patrol, and we went back up to the fire base with our wounded. We had three guys that got some shrapnel from the um, uh, grenades. Mm-hmm. So we get back up on a fire base, and I didn't put this down, but the, the, the end of the story is CWO Rost and I are standing on this little knoll on top of the fire base waiting for a helicopter to come and pick us up and take us back to Donghua. And we're standing there minding our own business. And here comes this chaplain, and he starts giving me the riot act. And he's claiming that I said there was not going to be any shooting. Well, there was shooting, but it was down at the base of the fire base, not anywhere near him. But he thought he was going to lose his life, and now he was taking it out on me. And he called me every name in the book and read me down one side and down the other side. And I kept telling him to go over to helicopter support and get a ride. You know, go see that guy over there. Get away from me. Well, finally, he left. And I looked at Rasta, and I said, I picked up his collar, which is, has his Warren officer bar on it. And I pick up my collar, which has got Staff Sergeant Chevron's on it. And I said, why didn't you help me? And he said, it wasn't my fight. <laughs> And so when we got back to Dong Han, he uh, put the paperwork in for me to get my combat action ribbon. So I was pretty proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. Number two would be my rabbit killing medal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, and I said it earlier that I would get back to uh, Master Gunnery Sergeant, uh, or Master Sergeant Buck. Mm-hmm. And he is on the wall. Yes. He, he is the start of the... Uh, 
I say the 60s, the 60s are from Korea, Marine, uh, KIA, uh, Buck is right there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Buck was on a range sweep at 29 Palms, and I don't know exactly how the accident happened, but he had an always acting fuse on a white phosphorus igniter for a napalm bomb, and it blew on him. And it covered him with white phosphorus. And as white phosphorus was burning, it covered him with what our first aid method at the time was what, uh, was copper sulfide. So they laid copper sulfide on him, and he died of his wounds. Mm. Do a retake back to 1967. I had um, I had some cysts behind my ears, mm -hmm. and the corpsman from Kaneohe said, well, we'll send you over to Tripler to have them taken off. Mm -hmm. So I went over to Tripler, and instead of taking the cyst off, because the doctor says they're going to wait, be with the rest of your life, uh, he took, cut two moles off my face. Now, at the time, we started wearing the EOD badge. The Marine Corps had just uh, allowed Marine EOD to wear the crab, or what we call the crab. Mm -hmm. uh, Staff NCO and above had the supervisor's badge, and NCO and below had the basic badge. I was wearing my EOD badge when I went into the tripler, and a doctor says, what do you know about Master Sergeant Buck? And I said, well, I know he died of white phosphorus burns, and I went to his funeral, and he said, well, I'm interested in white phosphorus, but I can't get any. And I said, well, have you tried Army EOD? And he said, yes. And they said, no, they don't, they don't do that kind of stuff. And I said, well, but what about a chemical store? And he said, no. And then he said what he wanted to do is he wanted to find out the new first aid method would be for white phosphorus burns and and his thing and reading reports that people died of white phosphorus that should have lived and people lived that should have died of white phosphorus burns and he wanted to try to find the answer. Hmm. So his thing was to do a pellet at a uh, uniform size so that the experiment could be duplicated down the line. So I said, well, let me see what I could do. At the time, Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station had a EOD team of one officer and two enlisted. Me and uh, Staff Sergeant Griffin was the enlisted, and Steve Rosta was our boss, but he was also the ordnance officer. So it was Bob and I that actually run, run the EOD team there. Back further on my time on Okinawa, we were getting ready to do some boilouts of white phosphorus, 81 millimeter mortars. And I was in the bunker with a master sergeant, uh, Bayless, who was teaching me, and these guys were Korean War and World War II veterans that we were learning from. Well, he was drilling into a white phosphorus round and as he went into the phosphorus, the phosphorus came up on the fluke of the drill bit. Then he took a pair of tweezers and he took that little piece of white phosphorus and took it outside the bunker and he laid it in the sun. And he said, I want you to watch that to see how long it takes before it ignites. 
So I stood there and I watched it, and it took about eh, 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I go back to Hawaii, I'm thinking, well, if it took 30 seconds for that little sliver to catch on fire, what if I freeze it? So that was going to be the plan. So I, Griffin and I uh, went and drew out a, a uh, case, three rounds of uh, 3.5 white phosphorus rockets. We took the rocket motors off, the fuses off, and took the warheads and put them in a freezer, and we froze them. Then about five, six days later, we took one out, and I did a paper on this, by the way, uh, and we sawed it in half, put a screwdriver in the crack, hit it with a hammer, dropped it into a bucket of water, and then we had our raw white phosphorus. Then it was a matter of making the correct size pellet or wafer, mm -hmm. and I used a series of uh, hot water uh, and ice water to to make it. I would take the raw phosphorus and drop it into a mold that I made from the cap of an aerosol can, and in, and it was on a hot plate. So the hot water melted the white phosphorus, still being underwater. It filled the mold, and I would take the mold out with a pair of tweezers and drop it into the ice water and the ice water would solidify it and I would pop it out and I had a way for a white phosphorus. Mm. So then uh, the doctor would call me and say, I've got say six rabbits to burn. We use two, two wafers for each rabbit. I designed a, a cylinder that had a stainless steel wire on top of it in crosshairs. And it had a tab on each side of it that I could put a vice grip on. And I would hold the, the, <laughs> the good doctor would shave the rabbit. And then he would uh, put the rabbit out. Mm -hmm. And then we put the rabbit on a board. And then I would place this cylinder on top of it. He would take a wafer and put it wafer on the skin of the rabbit and a wafer on the crosshairs above it. Then he would hit that wafer uh, with a hairdryer, which would ignite it, and he would start a timer. And then when the time bing, whatever time he wanted, then we would pour ice water back into the cylinder. That would solidify the white phosphorus. We'd take the white phosphorus and take it outside and let it burn out and then go to the second rabbit. And so we did this uh, whenever he could get rabbits or when he got funds for rabbits. And then the um, general from the burn laboratory actually made a trip to Hawaii to see our operation. And he was impressed to the point that he told a doctor that maybe he was giving the rabbits too much anesthetic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so then, uh, so then he, he cut back on... Uh, because he was he was doing it in in a vein, so yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the the rabbits did not live one way or the other, but it, he would he would try different methods. Mm -hmm. Well, one day he called me up and he said, um, uh, "Come on over," and I said, "How many?" And he said, "No, no, I just want to want to get together with." So I got over there and he had a bottle of brandy, and he said, "We did something that nobody else had done before." Well, I didn't do it; I just applied to white phosphorus. He said he had proven that when a white phosphorus was burning, 
that the phosphorus count jumped, but also your calcium calcium count lowered rapidly. The same as the uh, the jump up in the phosphorus, it decreased your calcium. Then after the flames are out and it's not burning, it's still reacting but not burning. The um, the phosphorus count slowly goes up and your calcium count slowly goes down. So his idea is that some of these guys could have been saved with a shot of calcium. Hmm. Now, the other thing he said is that as your phosphorus count goes up, you die of convulsions. Hmm. Back up to our old copper sulfite method of first aid, when you have copper put on your body on a wound, you're getting uh, soft metal poisoning. And your death in that case is going to be convulsions also. That's why he could not prove whether Buck got killed by the white phosphorus or he got killed by the copper sulfide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It took about four years after that that they... uh, Change the uh, uh, first aid method mm-hmm. for white phosphorus burns, and that would be cold water. Now, I w- when we did bomb dumps in Vietnam, we would put we would station fifty five gallon drums of water, half full of water, throughout the bomb dump, and next to them we put a couple CO two fire extinguishers. That if anybody got hit, but with white phosphorus, we would put them in the 55-gallon drum, mm-hmm. and then we would chill the water with the uh, uh, fire extinguisher. That was the way we treated uh, bomb dump casualties. We didn't have any. We had one later, uh, Rasta, and, or not Rasta, but Rimbish and uh, Tom Hamilton on a 60-millimeter mortar. Uh, but uh, that was uh, an accident that was a result of ammo that wasn't found in the ammo dump at the time. It was a dead call. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, did they, did, how did the, how did the shot of calcium fi- factor into that too, Carl? Do you well, remember? Uh, I don't know. It, it was, that was his findings. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if that later was, he wrote a book on it. I never had a copy of it, but, uh, 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 it was the, the fact that if if you have phosphorus in your body, and his thing was to to try to cut away the phosphorus or neutralize the, the phosphorus. Right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we did that with water and vinegar. Hmm. So when Rembish and Hamilton had their accident, they had a sixty, uh, a, yeah, sixty millimeter mortar, and when Tom picked it up. Uh, it had a hole in it, and the white phosphorus ran on his hand. Mm. And then Remish, trying to knock the phosphorus off his hand, got it on the two of his fingers. Mm. So when uh, Ham, they they uh, medevaced him to the repos, and they did a terrible job on cutting the phosphorus out of his the palm of his hand. Oh, wow. uh, but with Remish, <laughs> who was my... My uh, OIC at the time, I said, okay, now this is going to sound funny. And I said, you can listen to what the doctors tell you, or you can listen to what I tell you, mm-hmm. or you can do both of them. 
I said, and I'm, I'm not going to tell you this is going to cure you, but I'm going to give you an advice that I think you ought to do it. And I told him about uh, another staff sergeant on Hawaii that got burnt when we were burning rabbits and what the, the doctor told him, and that was to put 50% vinegar and 50% water and to soak the wounds three times a day in that. Mm-hmm. And what that did was neutralize the phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And so the wounds healed a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So for that, uh, they put me in for the Army commendation, but when the uh, so I tell you, when the uh, paperwork came over to Marine Corps Air Station, they said that that uh, is equiv- equivalent to the Navy Achievement Medal, so I got the Navy Achievement Medal. Okay. All right. And a funny story about that is I went back when I went to Indian Head, I was standing there at inspection on Friday, and Captain John Haynes, who was a stickler for uniform was walking past. He looked at my ribbons and he said, because he knew I had a tour in Vietnam, he said, don't you rate a combat V in there, ribbon Marine? And I said, no, sir, the rabbits didn't give much of a fight. (laughs) (laughs) There you go, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then a third one would probably be the one from Benoit. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was working with, uh, mainly working with the Vietnamese. And uh, I had set up a, uh, a deal where if we were down at Benoit as a Marine Air Group, but we did not bring our, uh, our supporting. So we had no uh, uh, SAR, no search and rescue. So we had to rely on the Vietnamese. So with the Vietnamese NCOIC, and I came up with an idea that if a Marine plane went down uh, that uh, and we had to go out and recover the body, that um, uh, we would use Vietnamese uh, aircraft. But on the same token, if the Vietnamese EOD, if they, are, if they had to go out, that we would get to go out with them. And I got to go out in, in the bush with my NCOIC and and recover bodies, not not Americans of Vietnamese. And then I I was the answer to the Air Force when the Air Force tried to give the, the Vietnamese an order that they couldn't fulfill or didn't want to fulfill. And uh, so I was I and my team uh, was given the um, awarded the uh, Vietnamese EOD badge, mm. and then I was given a. Uh, uh, an award for the Vietnamese, which I could find the uh, medal, but it, they don't make them or sell them anymore. Mm-hmm. It's called an honor, Vietnamese honor medal. Mm-hmm. But the Marine Corps gave me the Navy accommodation with, with a combat V. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty proud of that one, too. Yeah. And the fact that I, in doing research, um, just a couple of years ago, I found the archives, which are stored in uh, Austin, Texas, in the University of Texas, uh, or Texas, Texas U. You can get all the paperwork for uh, actions that were done in Vietnam, and I researched a chronology report from MAG-12 uh, at Benoit. 
because a lot of people miss it. We're not in any books. Mm-hmm. If you if you find a book on Vietnam War, Mag 12 in 1972-73 is not listed. But we were there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, in finding the uh, reports, the after-action reports, come to find out that I'm listed in there and named mm-hmm. in there. And I thought that was pretty neat. That is neat. And I didn't know anything about them. All these years, I mean, we're talking about 1973, mm-hmm. 72, 73, and, and 2000, and what was it, 2018 or 19, somewhere around there, I discovered them. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It is interesting. And this is an archive at the University of Austin, is that right? Yes, they, they, they have, if you, if you served in a unit in Vietnam, uh, they have the archives at the uh, at uh, University of Texas in at Austin. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. <clears throat> Very interesting. Well, that had to be a cool find, Carl. It was. It was I was delighted, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was at the time that I was in the Marine Corps, it was classified, and I didn't have a need to know, so I didn't get to read it. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Um. <clears throat> Well, after after 22 years of service, you retired from the Marine Corps, and you started out as an enlisted service member and retired as a captain. Yes. And 17 of those years were spent overseas. Do you do you have a favorite place overseas? I well, I, I would have to say Hawaii because mm-hmm. uh, Hawaii was considered overseas at the time that I was in. Mm-hmm. Even though it was the 50th state, they still considered it an overseas tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, of course, Japan. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody loves Japan because they, <laughs> I think, because they think 180 degrees opposite of us mm-hmm. that it's unique to us. But mm-hmm. I love Japan mm-hmm. and love the beauty of Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've uh, met. Several Marines who who absolutely love Japan. All right. Well, you retired um, for good, I guess, um, in 2005 after you had a great military career. And then you did the UXO Bomb Tech Arena for a while. Um, yes. And then, so so what are you up to now, Carl? What are you doing to keep busy now? <laughs> well, I got about three quarters of an acre here, so cutting that is takes in the summertime takes me one or two days, depending mm-hmm. on how much I do of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm active in art. Any any art, I uh, I have my I finally have my own studio, mm-hmm. uh, so I can twiddle around. And most recently, I started doing macrame again. Did you? Because my wife, de- yes, my wife decided she wanted some. Hanging baskets, and and I said, well, that goes back to 1970 in macrame. That's right. <laughs> he said, you know how to do that? I said, sure, I know how to do that. <laughs> so, uh, and surprisingly, well, I used to teach it too, so it, it, it you know, the the knots came back easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you do a lot of painting. I feel incredibly honored to have one of your paintings and and watercolor pictures that you did for me when I was going through a very trying time in my life, Carl, and it was something that was just timely um, to have on my desk when I got back to the office. Um, And um, I have it hanging in my office right now. It's it's a watercolor of a beautiful yellow rose, and I will always cherish that. And um, 
I I love I love your creativity. I see some of the things that you do, and uh, we're Facebook friends, so I get to see some of yes. the stuff that you do. Um, and you just recently painted some beautiful flower pots. And do you find the art is very therapeutic for you in a way that you can just just the creative side is just there, and it and it feels good to be able to produce something. Well, the uh, the the VA. Uh, was nice enough to send me to the University of Hawaii for a couple of years to study art too. So mm-hmm. I, I got a little background there. But in, in one of the classes was a thing about right brain, left brain. Mm-hmm. And left brain, you're logical. You're, uh, you know, that's where stick figures come from. And mainly reading and writing, that's why I'm not a good writer. But uh, the right brain is is again the pattern analysis it's it's the uh, the colors the shapes and uh that side really brings when you go right brain from left brain to right brain right brain is you don't have a timeline mm-hmm. you you um you go into it and you just enjoy being in the state uh, I think it becoming it comes close to being TM, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what I enjoy about art. In all art, mm-hmm. I carve. Uh, I used to have a ceramic country, a company, really. That, that, yes, that made uh, Hawaiian uh, style ceramics, and you know that you've come to pass when you go down to a swap meet. And you see your work there, but it's the second hand. <laughs> did you sign your artwork, Carl? Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, uh, well, I in Hawaii, I signed it as Keo, K-E-O, and it was Keo Galleries. Okay. Uh, and Keo means Joe in Hawaiian. Oh. And then when I was at Indian Head, I used to uh, sign my work, J-O-E, but it was actually a, a Z that um, had an extra two lines in it that spelled Joe and J-O-Z mm-hmm. together. Kind of the E was super superimposed over the Z. So, mm-hmm. in fact, my wife has a silver ring she wears that it's carved into. I didn't do it, uh, but I had it made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she thinks that that's hers. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and now I sign it as, as C. Jositis. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I have had my aliases down through the line. There you go. Well, yeah, some, Somebody wrote on, uh, on Facebook one time that he found a buzzard, but it wasn't signed by me. It was signed by this guy called Joe. <laughs> and I said, no, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Um well, my son is going to be stationed back in Hawaii, and I'm going to ask him to, when he goes to the swap meets, to to uh, seek your pottery out and get me a little piece of that. That would be awesome. I got the if if he was going to Kaneohe, I'd say to, uh, have him take a look at the old golf course to see if there's any remnants of my towers. I blew three towers down at Kaneohe. Oh, did you really? Okay. Yes, they were they were 150 feet tall. They weighed in excess of 15 tons each, and they were built for 
submarine warfare back during WW2 mm-hmm. when it was a Navy air station. Uh, submarines in those days went on low frequencies, so they these were three towers that um, had wire connected and actually became a v- very big antenna mm-hmm. that they could broadcast to submarines. Mm-hmm. And I shot them down in 1976. Mm-hmm. Cool. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. Sounds fun. Blowing things up and blowing things down is a fun operation. You're not kidding. I mean, you know, I haven't met an EOD tech yet that wasn't, uh, you know, enthralled with that and, and lived for that adrenaline, that's for sure. Um, so that's awesome. Um, well, Carl, do you have... Any advice for um, military service members who are separating from the service or still active duty or anything that you'd like to share with our listening audience? I do. I do. And, 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 and basically, it's your paperwork. Mm-hmm. Keep as many records as you can. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't started one, start one now. And that's a hero's book. That's what we called it in my time. Take a loose leaf binder and go and buy a, a package of page protectors. Mm-hmm. And take all your paperwork, all your uh, promotions, all your orders, uh, all your uh, company pictures, and anything else and put it in that book. That's your hero book. And you'll go back to it if you need to find anything. Uh I started mine because Master Gunnery Sergeant Potter said, you will have a hero book, and we were at the facility, and he gave me this three-inch binder, and he said exactly what I'm saying right here. Put all your records that you have uh, in that book, and you'll have a place for everything. Mm -hmm. And when you need it, uh, you'll have it right at your hand. Right. Right. And if you do a uh, VA claim, start another book on that mm-hmm. and keep all your paperwork in the page protectors and you'll have a source to go back to to answer any question. Right. Yeah, that's great advice, Carl, um, specifically with the VA claims, because sometimes our folks get out and either they separate from the service or they retire after a career in the service. And, you know, things don't show up immediately sometimes. And having that documentation is very, very important should something, you know, um, show up at a later date that you need either medical attention for or um, or anything. So um, I, I really like that advice. Um, and Carl, as part of your legacy, how would you like people to remember you? Well, I would have to say as a member of Marine EOD Brotherhood, I had, uh, of my 22 years, 18 of them were with EOD, mm-hmm. either in school or out of school. And uh, I would think, uh, and I've, obviously I was there before the badge and then after the badge. And I would, I would say as a member of the Brotherhood of Marine EOD. Very cool. Yes, sir, you are. 
<laughs> well, thank you. Yes. Um, all right. Well, Carl, it has been so fun talking to you today. And before I let you go, I always like to have a little bit of lighthearted fun. So um, are you ready for some for some questions? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. What's your favorite season of the year, Carl? It has to be springtime. Mm-hmm. Springtime is the morning of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about um, your favorite garden vegetable? I know you have a garden. I know you love flowers, and you have a garden. So what's your favorite garden vegetable? Can, can I replace that with a fruit? Sure, absolutely. Okay, kumquats. Oh. I have I have a kumquat tree, and for about three years I looked at that kumquat tree and had uh, my granddaughters enjoyed kumquats. I enjoyed kumquats, but I never did anything with them. And uh, about three years ago, I decided to make marmalade. And so now every January, because that's about the time for satsumi oranges and kumquats, I make kumquat marmalade. That sounds delicious. So let me ask you, um, so my husband and I make some jams and, and jellies and stuff like that. So maybe we can trade one. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Yes. I'll tell you another thing I made. Uh, this year I made lemon marmalade. Ooh. Because I, a lady at church, a friend, she has a little place in Silver Hill and some horses and some trees, and, and they grow. It's a little farm. And, uh, of course, every January I bring in kumquat marmalade for everybody, and she said, what can you do with with uh, lemons? And I said, I'm sure you can make marmalade. <laughs> it's citrus. Yeah. And so I looked it up, and one of the things it said in the instructions is that if you get homegrown lemons, they're much better than store-bought because there's no uh, uh, wax on them, number one, and, right. and they have had no pesticides on them. Because if you buy them in the store, you have to scrub them down. Right. And then you, and it's a lot easier than making uh, kumquat because kumquats are small and you need a lot of them. You need a but lot. But the lemon you just take and cut it in in uh, lengthways in four pieces and then make very small slices. Mm-hmm. And lemons have natural pectin in them. I'll be darned. Yes. Yeah. Learned something from you today. <laughs> about lemons that's really cool I think any you know I'm just intrigued by growing things and or utilizing fresh vegetables or fruits or whatever and turning them into something else I always love that my husband and I it's one of our favorite things to do when when things get ripe and ready to roll so oh yes um, yeah it's it's really cool all right so this might be a hard question for you, but what is your favorite art medium that you use, Carl? Well, I would have to start by saying uh, watercolor mm. because watercolor is so, it's like EOD. Uh, it's either good or it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Water, watercolor on, uh, on paper yeah, could be very, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. But once it's done, it's 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 similar to stained glass, and I've I've done stained glass in the past too. Have you? Uh, mm-hmm. Because you you see the white of the paper, and you're working from 
uh, light to dark and not as in acrylics or oils where you're working any which way you want to, light to dark, dark to light. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with watercolors, you're, you've got a set method to do, and if you do it correctly, it just has an inner glow to it that other mediums don't. Mm-hmm. But as far as other mediums, as you know, <laughs> if it's art, I'm doing it somewhere yeah. or the other. It's it's gonna uh I'm I'm gonna have a section of it somewhere in my life. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's tiny macdame in Hawaii in nineteen seventy five or it is tiny macdame in Spanish Fort, Alabama in two thousand and twenty one. It's somewhere down the line I'm going to be doing it. Yeah. That's so cool. I love it. Um, what is your favorite food from overseas? Oh, my favorite food is the only thing that I really found real great in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and that was Vietnam bread. They took it from the... Um, the French brought it over there first, but it's a it's a baguette, a small baguette, about a third of the size of a of a regular baguette, and it is it's got a shell to it and a texture to it, and we call it a, a crumb that is unequaled. And I've tried to replicate it for the last, I guess. 10 or 15 years and still haven't got it quite right, but I make French bread. Mm-hmm. But it's because I'm trying to do the Vietnamese-style French bread. Mm-hmm. Now, when I bake bread, I bake about 16 loaves, but only 15 go into the freezer because some way Karen is going to take one of them loaves and start cutting it, and the butter and the jam or the marmalade is going to come out, and we're going <laughs> to eat that one loaf. That's right. But I would say French bread and the Vietnamese uh, French bread is really, really great. Yeah, that sounds delicious. Um, all right, so this is the last question I have for you, and it would be your favorite song from your military era. Okay, favorite songs. I I have quite a few because mm-hmm. when you hear old-time songs, and I'm sure you do the same thing, Sherry, you, mm-hmm. you, you, you go back to whatever, you know, that song, where you were at when that song was popular. Sure. And Old Owns of Me comes to me from boot camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that anytime I hear that song or anybody says, what is your memory of boot camp? I'd say, oh, lonesome me. <laughs> and then the other one, and, and <laughs> when I told this to Karen, because uh, she couldn't understand when I went to uh, uh, Boulder Crest, mm-hmm. they, ha- they asked you about a song from, uh, I, I don't remember if it was your military career or if it was your wartime, and I said, the animals and I got to get out of this place. <laughs> And when I told that to Karen, she says, but you kept going back. That's right. <laughs> she said, that, that just doesn't sound right. How come you want to say you?" I said, because when I hear that song, I think of Vietnam. Right. So mm-hmm. anyway, those would have to be two of my guesses for it. Okay. Hold on to me. And, and that, always, that really says what, what boot camp's all about. Right. And then in Vietnam... 
memorial is I got to get out of this place. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, when we were chatting earlier and you were sharing your story about being from the south side of Chicago and and going back after your first tour in in the military and then understanding that that wasn't necessarily the place for you, um, the song that came to mind is Jim Croce, uh, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. And uh, I was like, yeah. (laughs) That is, and he was on the south side of Chicago too. (laughs) He was, yeah, that's right. He sure was. Um, Well, speaking of songs, I'll give you one more song. My high school was called Crane Tech. We had two technical college or technical high schools in Chicago. They were both male, mm-hmm. all male. And uh, uh, Lane Tech was one and Crane Tech was the other. Of course, I went to Crane Tech. A movie, a book came out about Crane Tech that a um, uh, substitute teacher wrote. And it was called Blackboard Jungle. Mm-hmm. And it was about Crane Tech. And the gang in at Green Tech. But the song that came out of the movie was Rock Around the Clock. Oh. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know the movie or have seen the movie, but they know the song. That's and, right. Bill Haley and, and the Comets. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that came that came out of the movie. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's so cool. Um, do you have a favorite book, Carl? A favorite book? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read so many of them. I really don't know what would be a, a favorite book. I could, I could say the Marine Corps Guidebook. <laughs> <laughs> any any book that you would like recommend for anybody to read? You know that. Oh yes, uh-huh. I I've, I've got. If you want to know about the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, the. Uh, the Bright and Shiny Lie is a good book written by Colonel uh, Holcomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a good that that is really a good book uh, on the war and, and some insight in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, what was another Vietnam War? Because I see I being being a Vietnam vet. Um, I just do not like the portrayal of what we look at. at a, now, it's getting better for the military now than it was in my time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, um, the wimpy uh, things that they show of Vietnam vets are just not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, Brown, I guess, is uh, documentary on Vietnam was totally propaganda. Mm-hmm. Every time they showed a North Vietnamese or a Vietnamese, you've seen a hero, you've seen a guy strutting around. And every time they showed you a military U.S., they showed you somebody wimping with his head down and his shoulders slung. And it and it it, it, it always has a, a bad sight for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Movie-wise, at the uh, Good Morning, uh, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, great movie. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good movie. Um, I'm always curious of folks that <clears throat> of of folks like you that have served in Vietnam. Um, you know what your opinions are on different things that are uh, put out for entertainment purposes and that sort of thing. Um, certainly, there are really good documentaries out there, but like you said, there are some that are um, 
you know, misconstrued and, um, yeah. Well, they do a disservice, I think, is what they right. do. And, and, and they, I mean, when you, when you go into a ville, a village, and everybody's hiding behind windows. You know they're hiding behind windows, and they're and they're and they're watching your every move. Mm-hmm. And a second time you go back, first you'll see one little kid, mm-hmm. then you'll see another little kid, mm-hmm. and then the next time you come through, you see a gaggle of kids. Mm-hmm. And you know this is this is what Amer- and Americans have. You know two things Americans always love, and that's dogs and kids. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I when I think of Vietnam, that's what I think. I've got a picture of a little kid in a rice paddy with a with a Batman T-shirt on. <laughs> and uh, we we did a thing about buying ammunition. Somebody somebody had a great idea uh, in 1969. It was on the Army side. Uh, the second lieutenant came up and, and talked to us at Donahue. He said he wants to go out and buy ammunition off of the farmers, and he wants to go out every Thursday. And we said, no, we don't do that here. <laughs> we we don't have a set, set schedule on, on doing things. So we would go out and we would buy ammunition. Uh, we he had an interpreter. He had a vehicle with a loudspeaker on it. We followed in our vehicle. And then we would, he would barter with the kids and the farmers for how much they had for a piece of ordinance, and then we would put it in in ours. And that's when you start seeing the countryside come together, mm-hmm. and you start seeing the smiling faces and and, and the people that are are not afraid of you. And and that is is my idea of Vietnam, mm-hmm. because like I said, all the Vietnamese that I met that were with me were on my side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have shared um, an incredible piece of history um, with us today, Carl, and I'm so grateful for this time with you and appreciate that you were willing to come on the podcast with me. It's been a, it's been a real treat and um, I can't wait to put, put this out into the world so that everybody can hear. And um, I certainly wish you and Karen the very, very best. And I hope that, I hope my husband and I can come to Spanish Fort someday and see you. That would be awesome. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. It would be yeah. great. We would love now, that. Now, I really appreciate you and, and all you've done for Wounded Warriors. I mean, a lot of people, I don't know if everybody knows your complete background on, on everything that you have contributed to vote. What was your organization? Didn't you have EOD Wounded Warriors? Wasn't that the title? Um, yes. So back in 2007, we had um, Wounded yeah. EOD Warrior Foundation and then... Yeah. Um, then you merged with the EOD Memorial Foundation. Memorial, yeah, in 2013. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I um I met a lot of wonderful people that are still friends to this day, and um, I thank you know Ken and Julia for all of their assistance in in allowing me and affording me that opportunity to um, have the time with our wounded servicemen and women, and uh, it's been a real pleasure and an honor, Carl. So. Um, and you, but Sherry, you're the one that reached out. You know, you did reach out to them, yes. and, that, and 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 I ha- I have to pat you on the back for that. 
Yeah, well, thank you, Carl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, it's it's an honor. And, uh, you know, when the organizations merged in 2013, I was fortunate enough to stay on as part of their staff and just continue to do good things. And I, I think having one centralized organization has been just made us a whole lot stronger. I really, really do. And uh, Well, I do, too. I, yeah. No, I agree. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. We have a great team here. Um, everybody, you know, wears a lot of different hats and does a fantastic job um, supporting the EOD family. And we're just we're just glad to be here and feel lucky to do so. Hmm. Well, you do a good job, and you 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 found you found your calling. Thank you, Carl. Let me put it that way. Thank you very much. Um, well. I hope that you have a wonderful day, sir, and um, I look forward to staying in touch on Facebook and, you know, maybe giving a call every now and then, too. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day, and uh, my best to you and Karen. All right. And, and, and back at you. All right. Thank you, Carl. Okay. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.